I'm going to begin by stating for the record three specific things. The first is that I have never audibly heard the voice of God speaking to me. Second, I have never had a vision of Jesus or even of an angel from God, not even in a dream. And third, I have never knowingly encountered an angel. Maybe unknowingly, but I've never been aware of the fact before, during, or after that encounter. And all of this is despite the fact that there have been numerous times in my life that I thought it would be really beneficial to get some clarification, to get some direct word from God about what I was facing or what was going on. And, you know, I, it would be nice if he would just explain to me what was going on so that I would understand what was the purpose behind some unhappy or troubling uh, circumstance or event that arose, not, you know, not just in my personal life, but even in the world at large. And I think we all feel that way, but I'm all so confident in thinking that the, those statements I made earlier are also true of you. You've never heard God's voice speaking out of the ether and giving you special knowledge about what is going on. And while I'm not going to comment in this sermon on any anecdotal accounts of someone who may have had such an experience and received that particular revelation from God, either audibly or visibly or in person, so to speak, I'm I'm going to acknowledge that there are many times that each of us would just wish that Jesus would appear beside us, put his hand on our shoulder, look penetratingly and deeply into our eyes, and assure us that he was about to do something wonderful. Because, humanly speaking, that is how we want to be reassured. That is how we want our fears to be allayed. That is, all we want is to understand what's going on and to have God simply explain that to us. And then we can just rest easy. But, speaking for myself, Jesus has never appeared to me to explain himself and what he is doing. And I... Upon reflection and maturity, and, you know, I, I would say that I am thankful for that because God does understand our humanity and because he has all wisdom, he is not going to allay our fears in the, in the way that we might want him to, but he's going to actually have a much better provision for us when we are confused, afraid, discouraged, or anything like that. So to help us recognize that, we're actually going to look at a passage from Scripture, 1 Kings chapter 19, 11 through 12. And it says, oh, and by the way, as I'm reading these Old Testament passages, I say Yahweh when it has the four capital um, letters, L-O-R-D, and I can explain that to you later if you have you know, questions why, but just understand that the L-O-R-D is a convention that we use in English translations to represent the, what's called the Tetragrammaton, which is the, uh, you know, Yad, Ha, Ve, Ha, 
which in Hebrew is related to the word he is, but it goes back to God's covenantal name. But the original language doesn't say Lord. It says the Tetragrammaton. And anglicized, it's Yahweh. So I, will, I replace it with Yahweh just as I'm reading. That's the only reason why. So don't get confused while I'm reading this. That I'm not reading what's on the um, screen, but I am. And it begins, it says, And he said, by the way, he is God, Go out and stand on the mount before Yahweh. And behold, Yahweh passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but Yahweh is not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Now this is, of course, where we read about God speaking to Elijah in that still, small voice. And often it's interpreted to be a prescription of how you and I are to hear the voice of God, that we need to quiet down and settle ourselves and attune our senses so that we can pick up that still small voice. And I can confidently say that that is completely wrong, and I'll dispel that notion with two quick points. First, Elijah was a prophet. He regularly heard from God. It was a regular basis thing for him. And second, in this very text we just read, it clearly states that God had just spoken to him before the earthquake and the wind and the fire and all that hubbaloo, and it didn't say anything about a quiet voice then. The point, I would say, that the text is emphasizing that Elijah understood God's summon to him, summons to him as coming in the sound of a low whisper is not to say that that is God's normative mode of vocalization, the point is the contrast of the low whisper with the hurricane, the tremor, and the conflagration. You see, Elijah had some complaints about the way his ministry was going, and he wasn't sure exactly what God was up to. And the Lord is teaching Elijah in this instant, and us as well by extension, something about himself. So he answers Elijah in this particular, unusual, and unexpected way. And I'm going to spoil the ending. The, the, the lesson is this, that God is present in near silence. Contrary to Elijah's notions and ours, divine silence does not mean divine inactivity. Job had some understanding of this. In the 26th chapter of Job, we read how Job is, at this point, coming to recognize that his intense suffering that he was going to is actually justly deserved, if only because of his own complaint against it. And he gives an account of how almighty, powerful, and all-wise God is. And he concludes that chapter by saying this, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? You see, to our puny perception, God may appear to be silent, but the thunder of his power and the extent of his activity is beyond even our capacity 
to understand. Likewise, we are meant to understand this, that on Mount Horeb, what God is showing us is that as God summons Elijah to appear before him, God's low whisper is mightier than the most powerful forces conceivable of the mighty wind, of the earthquake, and of the raging fire. But Elijah seems to have forgotten all this. So let's go back to the beginning of his story and see how he got to this point all the way back in chapter 17. And we can begin to understand the nature of his complaint better and perhaps draw the application for our own lives. At the beginning of chapter 17, this is where we are first introduced to Elijah, and it says simply that he appeared one day before King Ahab and declared that there will be neither rain nor dew from that point on except at his word, Elijah's word. We then read that God told Elijah to leave and go back across the Jordan to um, a brook called Cherith, which is probably in the northern was probably in the northern region of Gilead, which was the the region east of the Jordan River, and that he would you know drink from the brook, and that God would provide food for him miraculously delivered by ravens. You may remember that. Because of the drought, though, the brook eventually runs dry, and God sends Elijah to the town of Zarephath, which is in Sidon, which was the the area north of the kingdom of Israel. And there, Elijah stays with a widow and her son, and God once again miraculously provides food for them in the flour that doesn't run out, in the oil that doesn't run out during this time because the drought and the famine were also in that area. And not only that, but at a certain point, the widow's son gets sick, dies, and, God, and um, Elijah prays that the, the boy might return to life, and God miraculously answers his prayer, and the boy does return to life. Now all this, these events take, over, or take place over a period of about three years, during which, of course, there is no rain, there is an intense drought and a severe famine. And Ahab is searching everywhere for Elijah because this drought is going to continue. So finally, the Lord tells Elijah to go back and confront Ahab. So he returns to Israel. He tells Ahab, gather up all the people and all the prophets of Baal and Asherah, the false gods that Israel was worshiping at the time, and to assemble up on Mount Carmel. And there, Elijah issues a challenge. He says, the prophets of Baal can take one bowl, and I will take another. They can make their um, altar to Baal, prepare their bowl as a sacrifice, but not to put fire to it, and and call out to Baal. And if he sends fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice, then you will know that Baal is God, and you can follow after him. However, I will take a bowl, I will prepare a sacrifice on an altar to Yahweh, I will call upon his name, and if he sends fire and consumes his sacrifice, then Yahweh is God, and you should follow after him. Well, it seems 
uh, fair proposition to the people, so they said it is well spoken. And because they were more numerous than he, Elijah grace, gracefully let the um, prophets of Baal go first. They prepared their bowl, and they cried out, O Baal, answer us! And they did this all morning until mid-afternoon, but nothing happened. In 1 Kings 18.29 we read, And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered them. No one paid attention. No voice. No answer. No attention was paid. This is a truly silent God. Well, having failed, it was now Elijah's turn. And this is what we read of of, in uh, 1 Kings 18. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he prepared the altar of Yahweh that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of Yahweh came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of Yahweh, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bowl in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. Then, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, and let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. At this point, Elijah tells Ahab to prepare for the rain to come. And a little while later, the skies grew black with clouds, and a storm arrives with heavy rain. And then Elijah, with the hand of the Lord upon him, girds up his garments, and on foot outran Ahab's chariot all the way to the town of Jezreel, some 20 miles from Mount Carmel. Now with the sign of the fire from God falling and consuming his offering, the wood, the stones, the water, and the very dust of the ground, Elijah had made the people witness of the truth that Yahweh, he is God. And then on top of that, at his word, rains had returned and the famine was ended. Now, after all this, you would, it seems reasonable that Elijah would have some expectations. He had proved the point. People should repent. They should turn from their sins. They should return to the Lord their God. But why didn't that happen? You see, when Ahab tells his wife, uh, Jezebel, 
about what had happened, including how Elijah had killed all the prophets of Baal with the sword. Jezebel, the Sidonian princess who propagated even further Israel's descent into pagan idol worship, well, she sent a messenger to Elijah with this saying, So may the gods do to me, and more so, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And we read that Elijah was afraid. And he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. I mean, put yourself in his shoes. Wouldn't you have had those same expectations regarding the aftermath of the events on Mount Carmel? I would have expected the people to storm the palace and purge all Israel of its idolatrous wickedness, beginning with that pagan queen. I mean, it's only natural, right, to expect that when we clearly see God's actions, that a great spiritual movement would result. But take a look around us during our own time. I just don't see God doing the things that I find myself wanting him to do. I can look at these past few years and think that our society takes one step forward and five steps back. Every time something good and positive and righteous seems to happen in society or in culture or in politics, and that the people might be at the point where they are ready to open their eyes and see their need to repent of their transgressions, to to seek after the Holy One, the world just seems to rebel and descend even further into wickedness. So, isn't the impulse to throw up our hands, to turn our backs, to flee and run away? Doesn't it seem too costly, too futile to fight against evil? Maybe I should just hide out here where it's safe. So I'm not surprised when Elijah, hearing that Jezebel is going to kill him, runs for his life. I can, I can relate. So he leaves Israel behind. He flees to the wilderness of Judah, someplace where he um, believes he could be out of Jezebel's reach. And it wasn't just out of fear that he did this. He was also just this plain discouraged and lonely. I mean, look what it says in verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Yahweh. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And again, I can understand. Elijah felt that he had been sent to stand against paganism all alone. God was with him, sure, but he was standing there all alone. No one else was beside him. And in our day too, if you are to remain faithful, you might find yourself standing all alone. Consider how often we hear of Christian denominations, churches, evangelical leaders, well-known pastors, abandoning the authority of Scripture and its clear doctrines And in their unbelief, compromised with sin, and in their misguided empathy, they end up identifying with the world and its corruptions. We see this happening, and we think that absent any reformation and great revival, 
The end result will simply be a majority of Christians and a majority of churches riddled with unbelief on one side, while we stand on the other with a seemingly shrinking number of Orthodox believers who still worship the God of the Bible. So I, like Elijah, hope expectantly for this reformation and revival and the repentance and returning to the faith of the whole of the church and the subsequent spread of the gospel to the whole of society and throughout the world. But what if I don't see any of that happening, at least in the way that I envision it happening? And what if I live faithfully my entire life and never see God moving as I expect to see him moving? Does that mean that God is inactive? Will I respond to persistent and pervasive wickedness like Elijah and run away in fear, sorrow, and despair? And if I do, what do you think God should say to me? Will he not ask me, what are you doing here? Because that is exactly what God asked Elijah. You see, Elijah was a man of like nature to us. We read this in James. And although he had, the same, he had seen great power from God, he had seen multiple miracles, still his faith and trust in God had wavered. He, like us, had relied upon his own understanding. He, like us, reacted in accordance with his sight and not in the confident belief in what God was doing. In his despair, he had even lied down in the wilderness and asked God to take him away from it all. It had, been, it had all been one big failure. But God, in that instant, comforted him and patiently attended to him and gave him an assignment, an appointment to keep. And so after many weeks of running, during which God faithfully sustained Elijah, he arrives at Mount Horeb, the Mount of God, also known as Mount Sinai, the same mountain that God had talked to Moses centuries earlier, the same mountain that he had commanded Moses to bring the people of Israel to as they left Egypt. And it is finally here that Elijah will hear the gentle rebuke of God, and God will demonstrate to Elijah just how wrong he had been. A rebuke that will come with a simple question, what are you doing here, Elijah? To which Elijah gave voice to his complaint. He had been jealous for God. The people of Israel had forsaken God's covenant and abandoned his worship, they had killed all of God's prophets until only he was left, and now they were seeking to kill him as well. That's what brings us to the text we started with. Elijah had fled to the wilderness, afraid, discouraged, and lonely. He had been guided to the mountain of God, <clears throat> where Elijah was summoned to prepare for a divine revelation in much the same manner as he was summoned as Moses was summoned when he was called to meet him on that same mountain. 
with Elijah protected in a cave, perhaps the same cleft in the rock that Moses was shielded by. Yahweh passed by, accompanied by the same phenomena that had been indications of God's presence when the Israelites were encamped at the base of the mountain after God had brought them out of Egypt. And when Yahweh summoned Elijah, Elijah came out, his face wrapped, for no one can see God and live. And God is able to summon Elijah with a low whisper, because that is how powerful he is. Let's read what happens. 1 Kings 19, 13 and 14. And when Elijah heard, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I do imagine that in answering God the second time, repeating word for word what he had said earlier, Elijah does so with contrition and remorse. But God will answer each of Elijah's complaints. First, he tells him to return. Whatever Elijah Elijah may have feared, God still has work for him to do. Second, the wicked house of Ahab will be rooted out, and the people of Israel will be punished for their sins. Jehu, whom he is to anoint as king of Israel, would eradicate Ahab's line. Haziel, who he was to anoint as king of Syria, would defeat and subjugate great portions of Israel. Third, a helper in the person of Elijah will be raised up for him and would carry on Elijah's prophetic office after him. And finally, Elijah was not alone as he had supposed. There yet remained 7,000 in Israel that had not bowed down to Baal. Elijah's assumptions and understanding of the situation, the reality, his conclusions of God's silence, these now stood corrected. So what about us? How does this account of Elijah help us when God seems silent in our situations? Because in this account that we just read, God actually did speak. To Elijah. Well, I'd have a few thoughts I'd like to share. Now, as you see, I didn't provide you with any notes to fill out or anything, but if you want to write something down, you can put down these three words. Scripture, belief, providence. So let's start with Scripture. You do know that up until the first century, the entirety of Scripture hadn't been written. Elijah himself lived in the 9th century B.C. We are, unlike Elijah way back then, are blessed to have the complete canon of Holy Scripture. And in the New Testament, in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, we read this, 
Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, by the day, by the way, those are the days that we are living in, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. But if Jesus is ascended and seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, how does he speak to us? We probably all know the answer. By his word faithfully preserved for us, in the canon of Holy Scripture. And since we have the whole of the canon of Holy Scripture completed by the revelation of Jesus Christ, God the Son, we can find it to be genuinely true. Let me read a few paragraphs from the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, and these will be from chapter 1, which is of the Holy Scriptures. From paragraph 1, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so, do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto the church, and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing." which maketh the Holy Scriptures the most necessary, those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. From chapter 5, we may be, re- be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to an on high and, in, and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter, matter the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof, are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evident itself to be the word of God, Yet notwithstanding, our, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth, the divine authority thereof, is from the in, inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. And finally from paragraph 6. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressly set down or necessarily contained 
in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Now, I would encourage all Christians to read these historic Protestant confessions, the creeds, and catechisms. The Reformation saw a profligate number of confessions, and they are of immense value in um, aiding us in whatever struggle or confusion or question each of us may have concerning a variety of matters of the faith. It's not like we are the first generation to have these questions. People have struggled with them and come up with really good, sound answers that can give us a lot of peace. So while they are not scripture themselves, they can certainly bolster your trust and faith in the veracity of the scriptures that we have. And I quoted here from the London Baptist Confession of Faith, but all of these confessions will be clear and aid you in the confidence and the surety of the divine authorship of Holy Scripture, its truthfulness, its sufficiency, and its inerrancy. And of course, when we speak of the whole counsel of God, of course, we mean the whole of God's Word, meaning we must read the whole of the Bible all of the time and over and over. As Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Would you like to teach and admonish with all wisdom? And are you aware that you can do so, thanks to the scriptures that we have, with the same confidence as Elijah? And do you want your heart to be encouraged? Paul desired this for the um, Colossian church. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding, and of the knowledge of God's mysteries, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. How Elijah would have longed for that encouragement. And in the Bible, it is, theirs for our, for, it, is their, it is ours for the taking. And remember from our time in Second Peter, in chapter 1, 19 through 20, says this, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in, our, in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along, by the Holy Spirit. So I exhort you to make a habit of reading the whole Bible. And I don't mean to brag, <laughs> humble brag, <laughs> but I try to read through the entire Bible at least three times a year. 
And yes, I'm retired. I have lots of time in my day. But I, I can tell you this, and I can tell you it's true. If you do a 90-day Bible reading, it'll only take you about 30 minutes a day. So it's quite possible to do it four times. <laughs> and you know how you like binge-watching stuff on TV? Binge-reading the Bible is really exciting, too. Now, this, this particular reading should, is in addition to your Bible study reading and your devotional time. The purpose of reading through the entire Bible like this is for you to become exceedingly familiar with it. And you want to read all of it. You get to learn you know, the histories. You read the Psalms, all of the wisdom, wisdom writings. You read the prophecies, the laws and the commandments, and yes, even the genealogies. And when you do, not only do you see the aforementioned consent of all the parts, i.e., its incredible consistency, but you also gain a much better understanding and insight into the world that you see around you day to day. Because you begin to see what God's providential working looks like. But more on that in a moment. Because first, I want to touch on belief. And by belief, I mean trust in your God. Here is a wise saying that Elijah should have remembered. Trust in Yahweh with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own, in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Now I won't pick on Elijah anymore because I find it easy to rely upon my own understanding oftentimes too. There are circumstances that we encounter that arise in life that seem impossible to, to have any other outcome other than complete disaster and the victory of evil. That, that's what we see. That's, and in many cases, it seems like that's what we experienced. However, let's just think last, back one week to the sermon on thankfulness. We are called to be thankful for everything in all circumstances. Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And of course, everything and all means everything and all. Why should we do this? Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Because our God is good, we are to trust in him and to believe him. Regardless of whatever our circumstance or situation, we know that for those who love God, all things work, to, for, work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8:28. And the good things that all things are working together for is our being conformed to the image of Christ, to be called, to be justified, and ultimately to be glorified 
in eternal relationship with him. And in light of this wonderful goodness, we should wholeheartedly trust our Lord, believe his promises, even when our enemies are coming to take our lives. Which brings me finally to providence, which admittedly without the understanding of God's character and promises as revealed to us in the Bible, and the belief and trust in his goodness and faithfulness to keep those providences, promises, I'm sorry, providence would make little sense. But given our commitment to the confidence of God's word and to the faith that he has given us to believe him and to trust in him, providence becomes inescapable. Look how God answered Elijah's complaints. God revealed to Elijah what he could not see, that God had not been silent, God had not been inactive, God knew what was going on, he knew what he was doing, and God was accomplishing his purpose. I will close with, the, with a reading from Isaiah chapter 15, verses 6 through 11. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him turn to Yahweh that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and I will and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for what you have provided for us in our moments of fear, doubt, in our moments of confusion. I thank you, Lord, that there are you are at work in ways that are beyond even our understanding. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word, that we can find the revelation of you in it, that you show us who you are, your character, your purposes, and what is required for us to live godly lives. Lord, I also thank you that you have given us the gift of faith, that when we doubt, you strengthen us and bolster us. And when we do not understand, you give us peace, knowing that you are indeed sovereign and in control. And Father, we thank you for your divine providence, whereby we know that you are constantly at work and bringing all things to your desired ends. I ask, Lord, that we may rest all the days of our lives 
in the goodness of Jesus. Amen.